0: Welcome to another edition of the Scrumcast. I'm Derek Neighbors.
1: And I'm Clayton Lingelzigich.
0: And uh, today we're just going to take a few questions that we've uh, gotten over Twitter um, in the last few days. Um, So the first question up is, do you have recommendations on particular reading materials that are good for people to learn the basics?
1: Hmm. Uh, You know, I think the basic stuff, uh, I think there's quite a bit of good information on the uh, Scrum, uh, the Wikipedia entry for Scrum. Um, that gets you some of the, you know, I could say glossary, uh, some key terms. And then other than that, um, what are what are those two, uh, a couple of Mike Cohn books.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Agile Estimating and Planning by Mike Cohn and User Stories Applied um, by Mike Cohn are both great um, kind of planning and uh, user story gathering books. I think uh, James Shore has... Uh, Agile Practices or Art of Agile Practices, something similar to that that I think is a really good overview of a number of different um, Agile methodologies, including Scrum. Um, the Agile Retrospective Books by uh, Esther Derby mm. is another really great uh, book on retrospectives. Um, the good news is there's so much stuff out there from um, uh, just a pure content blogs and websites. I mean, I strongly suggest going to ScrumAlliance.com um, or ScrumAlliance.org. Um, or any of the uh, XP um, Extreme Programming site, both have a lot of downloadable content available.
1: Yeah, I think the um, the interviews and articles, especially the interviews on InfoQ.com, uh, whenever they do anything with pretty much any technology or methodology, uh, the person that they interview always has to do some introduction because, you know, under the assumption that whoever's watching this doesn't maybe know what Scrum is. So uh, that person always will do a good introduction, Um I found those to be helpful.
0: And uh, the next question, we've got a couple uh, pretty good ones here. So, I mean, uh, we're trying to target these uh, to be, you know, 15 minutes or less so you can catch them on a a ride into work um, or walk around the block. Um, This one might uh, go a little bit deeper, but I think it's uh, something that uh, is good fodder for discussion, and that's uh, how do you recognize a dysfunctional team?
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good one. Uh, I think there's lots of different things. One one of the things, at least in my experience, that you know, kind of a good sign of a dysfunctional team is when you've got lots of, um, I guess maybe passive aggressiveness is a good way to say it, um, where team members want to, you know, there's some problem or something that uh, some team member is having with another, or with the process or something like that, um, and there's lots of kind of grumbling, you know, oh. I'll solve your problem and I'll also make some kind of backhanded comment about it. Uh and maybe I won't help you out later when you need something, uh, that kind of stuff. I think that that happens a lot. Uh what about you, Derek? What do you think?
0: You know, I think uh I think it's uh Patrick Leonisi has a great book out there, Five Dysfunctions of Team. And I think you can kind of map those directly across to um kind of uh agile principles as well. Um I think anything Um, that exhibits a lack of trust, which I think is kind of hard for some people to tell, you know, that there really is a lack of lack of trust. But the one that I see more often than not are the two biggest I see are fear of conflict. Um, And nobody, nobody wants to say the hard things or to step out or um, to make any kind of waves. You know, it's, uh, I think you're wrong. No, I'm not wrong. Okay, I'll let it go. Um, to me, that's a red flag that there's something deeper going on. Um, I think that uh, the best stuff gets made when people have healthy debate and argument about how to solve problems. Um, and then the the other kind of piggyback onto that is the kind of absence of commitment or accountability. Like I'll do anything possible to shirk. Um, accountability. Um, And I think all those are kind of rooted in fear, and they're rooted in fear because, you know, there's lack of trust for the people around.
1: Yeah, I think an important part about the the trust uh, aspect, especially the book, but just in general, lack of trust, a lot of people misinterpret that to mean that, uh, you know, for instance, oh, either I trust or don't trust Derek to do his job. But I think what the book and what they're really trying to get to is that you have uh, the trust that's required to feel vulnerable, uh, so that you don't feel you know, if I'm, if I really trust Derek and Derek trusts me, um, then I'm okay saying, hey, you know what, I screwed up, or I don't know what I'm doing, or, you know, I don't know, I don't have the means to solve this problem. Um, you know, it's really, I think that's the important part is that uh, the team members can trust each other and be vulnerable with each other.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, it, it's, it's hard to build that stuff too. I mean, I, you know, I like to say that kind of time is one of the only things that can really make that happen. I think that that's probably one of the, big things that uh, new agile teams fall into is they want to to gel and um, to have all of these, you know, they look at, you know, this is what a high, highly functioning, uh, high velocity team is made up of, and they want that overnight. And the truth is that those teams get built over, um, you know, sometimes a, a matter of years um, in working with people. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's a, a tough one to do. Um Next question. This is uh, one that uh, I'm curious to hear. I'd love to hear some even outside opinions of this. So when we post this, if people uh, can comment on this, I think it'd be great. And that's, um, I'm facing having a team with wildly differing work schedules. I'm finding this makes estimating and stand-ups more challenging. How do you handle that?
1: Um, I would say that you know having um, very different schedules on a team is going to make things difficult. And you know I don't know that there's anything... I think a lot of people have that problem, mostly because people have this desire to have different schedules. Maybe they're used to that, or you know, they just want certain things. And and I don't know that there's a real easy way to overcome that problem other than to get people on uh, more similar schedules. And that's going to be painful, and some people aren't going to like that, obviously. But uh, you know, it, it is very difficult, especially when the team's out of sync. And you know, if you've got, um, I think we've experienced this. If you've got people that are coming in much earlier and leaving much later. And there's this overlap for that. And then you also have people taking say lunches or breaks at different times. Uh, you get to a point where maybe the team uh, as a core only has, you know, two or three hours out of a day where they're actually all together, you know, working in the same space um, with the ability to a- answer and ask questions with each other. Uh, that's really challenging.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I guess the, my gut reaction is there's the legalistic answer, or answers. And then there's the more fluid answer. And I think the fluid answer is what impact is it having on your team? Um, I would say that, you know, if you can work all different schedules and have virtually no impact on the team, then it's really not an issue. Um, I've yet to see anybody really do that. So, uh, but I don't want to be facetious and say, you know, it's just not possible. Um, it might be possible on some really highly functioning teams. Um, I've seen it kind of tackled, really one of two ways one of three ways either um, fear of conflict and just nobody deals with it Um, the other option is kind of the middle of the road option. I'd say the best for everybody, um, mentality. And that is, uh, to have some form of core hours where you say, you know, from 10 to two or 10 to three, um, everybody's got to be in the office and everybody goes to lunch at the same time, but you can come in earlier, you know, you can come in at six and leave at two, or you could come in at 10 and leave at seven, but you need to be here from, from 10 to two, um. I think that that can work depending on what your work environment's like, the type of work you're doing, whether you're doing kind of XP pair programming um, and the hours of your customer. You know, are you doing internal product development? Are you doing consulting? I mean, I, I think a lot of that has a, a lot of play into it. If you're dealing with external teams, you kind of have to get on a schedule with some of those external teams. And then, of course, the last way I've seen it implemented is, um, you know, a much more rigid approach, which pretty much says, you know, this this is the time that the entire team works um, kind of come hell or high water, take it or leave it. You know, we work from seven to four, eight to five or nine to six or 10 to seven or whatever it is. Um, and it's just kind of expected that you're you're there within those times. And I think there's pros and cons to each one of those um, approaches. But I think only d- depends on what type of work you're doing and who you're doing it with and how you do it. Um, depends on, you know, the pluses and minuses of each of those choices. Um... Let's see. This is another uh, good uh, – two more, and uh, I think they're really good questions. Um, the first one is, what is the agile response to a request for a proposal, i.e. RFP, when the true answer is we don't know time or cost until we are done?
1: Uh, I think I'll let you field that one, Derek. I think you've got more experience in that regard.
0: Um, you know, I, th- I think it's it's really difficult. I think that, you know, in the RFP, you can put lots of language around, um, you know, you can really document or describe your process and how you handle that. Um, I think what you can start to do is kind of um, loosely say, you know, I think there's um, a few estimating techniques where you can take an RFP and you can derive some kind of high-level guesses or estimates on those. Um, and I think you can kind of say, you know, do we think we could do something like this based on the RFP that's been put in place? And what you kind of do at that point is you're able to say, you know, you've kind of got the the triple constraint, right? And so you can say, well, you know, we can do it for this price with this feature set in this time frame, assuming that you don't change anything. And, you know, if they're going to stay completely rigid on that, then, you know, everything's good to go. If they need to be able to change, if they need to be able to change the scope, um, you can do that, but you just have to to, to know that, that there's a, a cost adjustment for that. And so I think that uh, what we've seen some success in in responding to RFPs is, Um, Our approach of user stories and creating a backlog and responding to the RFP with a backlog and estimates and then having lots of language talking about how that relates to um, scope change, that's a much more appealing process for most larger companies than the change order requirement hell that they're normally put in from a contract perspective. Um, the hard part of that is getting a contract written that speaks to those scope changes without having to have the inordinate amount of documentation around every little um, kind of scope change. And then the last question, um, Teams, uh, what, what happens when the team is agile but the company is not? What are the first steps to get agile practices at a strategic level?
1: Uh, so i think one thing that uh a lot of people you know maybe on a development team or you know even even at a scrum master you know project manager kind of level um they see a lot of success with what they're doing and i think people kind of get kind of stuck in a rut where they they don't see or they can't think of any ways that that translates into um you know up the chain up the food chain and you know one of the things i feel like if you're you know, on a on an Agile team and you're, you know, developing things and providing lots of good value and doing things in a, a good amount of time and, you know, you're doing all these things and you have, you're reaping all these benefits, um, the benefits that you're seeing, I mean, those directly translate to business goals or, you know, some business value. And those are things I think that it's just a matter of, you know, probably finding some way that in your organization that you could translate uh, the successes that you're having with your product development into, you know, hey, here are things that we're doing. Uh, and here are the benefits we're seeing, and this is how those benefit you. Um, and so I think that's one way to kind of drive that change where, you know, from the bottom up of here's all this great success we're having. Um, if you guys could make these incremental changes, you know, keeping keeping in mind that you have to make baby steps, I think. Um, that would be a good way, I think, to to drive that change up the food chain so that uh, you can start experiencing that more across the organization.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've yet to meet a CEO, um, that isn 't interested in uh, the fundamental principles of agile, I think the problem that we generally have as practitioners is we have to change the language we use when we talk to c level executives um, you know most of them want to be able to um, you know use the word pivot they want to be able to you know pivot their company in a different direction um, I've yet to find one that 's not interested in being an innovator or being able to be ahead of the curve um, you know and I think that agile practices. A- allow them to do that a lot more simply um, and so it's a matter of you know getting them to uh, say you know hey the same way that we're able to take a feature backlog and create that feature backlog and break it down into sprints and to tackle those sprints and allow ourselves to change as need be you can kind of do a very similar thing from a strategy perspective you can kind of say you know where, what's the goal we're looking for can we break that goal down into smaller segments or smaller chunks and still have a long term goal? Um, but if, you know, two months into our strategic plan, our. Ma- biggest competitor does something completely different and out of the water and we need to change course, we've got the ability to do that. And I think a lot of big corporations fall into this. You know, they basically create a five-year strategic plan and it takes them four years to update it. Um, And so they get totally submarined. Uh, You know, if you look at like a Blockbuster um, and uh, a Netflix comes along, um, and has a totally different model. The inability to basically pivot and say, "Can we compete in that market?" Um, you know, took them probably three to four years to even get get their product out. And at that point, it was so far behind um, and had become so irrelevant. And they spent so much money trying to get that product to market that they basically submarine their stores. And and so I think you know, I, I again, I don't think there's a single CEO that's not interested in um, being able to be nimble or pivot or you name it, but I think we just have to stop talking in technical terms and stop, start talking in marketing terms or in strategic terms to get them to understand that you know these very same principles can be applied to the work that they do as well. And I think that that kind of segues in. Uh, hopefully uh, next uh, time we'll talk a little bit maybe about um, Scrum outside of software. Um, could you use Scrum to uh, manage an organization? And with that, uh, we'll see you next time.